We're on 77 in your books, and we're going to be looking primarily at Matthew 16, verses 21 to 28. There are parallel passages for this lesson over in Mark and Luke as well, but primarily we will be sitting comfortably in Matthew 16. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you once again for this day that you have given to us. Thank you for life. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, the living God who revealed himself to to mankind that we might get to know you and through your son, might get to spend eternity with you. Father, we thank you for this facility. We thank you for the comfort we have here in this warm building. We thank you for this church, and we pray your blessing upon it, Lord. Give them the vision and um, to, to just live for you and to glorify you, to be a, a beacon of truth in this community for you. We pray that you would bless Scott and his work here and the deacons and just... Um, we, we cover them with prayer and pray that you would keep them all from the evil one and help them to always be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. As we pray for this ministry as well, we'll may we always be focused on the truth of your word and not compromise. Thank you, Lord, for again this opportunity we have, the privilege we have, the freedom we still have to open your word with sisters in, in Christ and to... Um, to just get to know you better through a look at your life. For we pray, Lord, these things that you would be glorified in your name. Amen. Well, after having received a firm confirmation from Peter on behalf of the other apostles as to their faith in Christ's identity as not only the Christ, the anointed one, the promised seed of the woman, but also as the son, the son, the one and only son of the living God, Jesus was now ready to reveal to his men for the first time in unveiled language some additional very critical truths. He is going to tell them about his primary work, which is what was, I should say, was his sacrificial death upon the cross. For the first time in unveiled language, he is going to tell them that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer many things at the hands of the religious rulers, and he must be killed. And the good news, which they didn't really seem to hear, was that on the third day he would rise again. We'll be looking at those things uh, this morning. He felt that the moment was ready in their lives to begin. Plus, he's getting short on time, isn't he? Time is ready for him to begin telling them these great truths about the sovereign, redemptive plan of the triune Godhead, that plan that was established in eternity past. He had given some hints some veiled hints in pictures and symbols about some of these truths along the way. But now he begins to explain things much more clearly. As we open up the scripture and we look at this lesson called Profiting by Loss, we're going to look at five different divisions for our outline purposes. We'll be talking about the sacrificial plan, which he reveals in verse 21 of Matthew 16, then the satanic presumption, which comes from the lips of none other than Peter, same one who in our lesson last week spoke for God, now he's speaking for Satan. Can that happen to us? Sadly, it can, yes. Then we will look at the Savior's protest of what Peter said, the salvation paradox, and the sure promises. So let's begin by looking at Matthew 16:21, the sacrificial plan. And notice the words from that time forth begins with those words from that time forth. This tells us it's a sort of a transitional time now. He's going to be really be concentrating on teaching his men the vital truths of his crucifixion and resurrection. The last time we saw those words in Matthew, I think, was over in 417 from from that time forth, and that was when he began his public ministry. So this is a transition here. It says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem. And we can use the word must in all four of these situations here. We could say he must go to Jerusalem and, again, must suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and must be killed and must be raised again the third day. The must is, is uh, for all four of those things. All right, then verse 22, it says, Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. In other words, Peter is saying, God forbid, this is not going to happen, Lord, not to you. 
But he, speaking of Jesus, turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. All right, let's stop right there for now. Actually, I had just meant to read verse 21, but I got carried away with myself. (laughs) In this one simple verse, the Lord told his men very clearly what his coming, what his purpose for coming to earth was. He told them about the greatest work he had come to perform. And he revealed it to them, notice, in four stages. He said first that he must go where? He must go to Jerusalem. And I thought it was interesting. He's beginning his death march. From this point on, he's beginning his death march down toward Jerusalem. But he positioned himself as far from Jerusalem as he could have gone and still have been in the promised land. Where is he now? Remember, he's up near Caesarea Philippi. Can't go much further north or you'd be outside of Palestine. So um, he's up there. And that's lo- that was located 120 miles north of Jerusalem, which this week I traveled with my husband. We went down to the coast, and I was set the, um, the mileage thing. What's it called? Yeah, that thing. And, and it was 130 miles trip. And I got to thinking, Jesus, you know, if <laughs> I wasn't saying that as a, <laughs> Jesus walked. I better finish my sentence. <laughs> Jesus walked that kind of mileage all the time. And I'm driving, and it took us three hours to travel that distance, 130 miles. <laughs> it takes me 25 minutes to get from my house here. And, and he walked those kind of distances all the time. I, if I walked just one time from my house in West End down to the coast, I would be so proud of myself that I would remember it for the rest of my life. And you would probably be pretty impressed with me. That's quite a walk. But these guys, just think of all the walking they did. And they didn't have smooth terrain. You know, from here to the coast, it's pretty flat. They had rugged terrain, you know, hills, mountains, and they walked. And I thought, you know, there weren't any, there was no such thing as fatty tissue back in those days. Because everybody walked. (laughs) This is where my mind goes. You have to think about something when you're driving from here down to the coast because there's not a lot to look at. But I was thinking about how in shape the Lord and his men were. And probably people in general, because, you know, they ate well, too. All they ate was uh, bread and, you know, fish and chips, (laughs) bread and fish, and and they had all that exercise. So once again, I just emphasize how how, um, in shape the Lord Jesus Christ was, how fit he was, and his men as well. So anyway, from this point on, his journey takes him step by step toward the city of sacrifices, toward the holy city, toward Jerusalem. Do you know what Jerusalem means? It means foundation of peace. Interesting. Certainly hasn't been, but it will one day be (laughs) when the Prince of Peace rules from there. But he gives some, some musts. So remember we've talked about when the Lord says the word must, it's a divine imperative. It is a must that comes thundering forth out of eternity. Remember some of the musts that he has said in the past? Remember when he was 12 years old and his parents found him in the temple and he said that he must be about his father's business? Do you remember uh, when he said to Nicodemus that except a man, or a man must be born again? Ye must be born again. Remember also speaking to Nicodemus when he said um, that the, the Son of Man must be lifted up? You know, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up? What was he talking about there? His crucifixion. And uh, remember when he was talking, I think it was to the woman at the well, and he said that he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Well, here we have four more. He must needs go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with a woman at a well. Here again now we have four musts. First of all, he says that he must go to Jerusalem. Secondly, he told them that he must suffer many things from who? The religious rulers of Israel. The elders represent the judges. The, uh, the chief priests would be the Sadducees, because they were all the chief priests were Sadducees. 
And the scribes would be mostly Pharisaic because the, the Pharisees and the scribes always were hand in hand. So he's talking here about the fact that his suffering would come from the hands of the religious rulers of the nation. What were some of the many things that he would suffer at their hands, that he must suffer? Beatings, he would be spat upon. First of all, he would be betrayed by a friend. Then he would be falsely accused. He would go through all kinds of unfair trials. He would be scourged, mocked, spit upon. He would have his beard plucked from his face. He would be slapped. Just think of the many things he went through, the suffering on the cross at the hands. And, of course, the worst of all was that he was separated from his father for the first time in all of eternity. But all these things were a divine imperative. He must suffer many things. Why? So that he could take our sin upon him and die in our place. Well, the third truth he revealed to his men was that he must be killed. And this was the first time the Lord spoke clearly of his upcoming death to his men. No more, no more pictures, no more symbols. He had previously spoken to them of this truth in veiled language, which is, you know, it's very obvious to us because we have the advantage of being on this side of the cross. But to those guys, it wasn't quite so obvious. For example, when he had said that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so would the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the, in the heart of the earth. And when he had said, although he said this only to Nicodemus, so I'm not sure the disciples heard it because Nicodemus came to him at night, but when he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that was veiled language. Nicodemus got it at the end when he saw the Lord lifted up, but I don't even know if, the, if his men, the disciples, heard that. Then remember when he had said, destroy this temple, and in three days he would raise it up again? Again, veiled language. They didn't get it. And he had also said that, um, what else did he say? Oh, in the Bread of Life sermon, he had said that he would give his flesh you know, he's a living bread. He would give his flesh for the life of the world. But all of these things, and maybe he said some more that I've forgotten, all of this type of language had not been so clear as what he said here to his men when he comes right out and says, can't make it much clearer that he would be killed. He must be killed. He must suffer many things, and he must be killed. Not too many ways you can take that, right? That's, that's crystal clear. And this announcement, this far, these first three musts, so apparently so stunned his, his men that it hardly seems that they even heard his last divine must, which was a must of victory. What did he say? That he also must be raised on the third day. They didn't seem to have ears to hear it. This was, you know, what they heard so far just kind of clogged up their ears, and they didn't hear it. Just like I don't think they really heard what he had said last week which was not last week for them, but when he had said that the gates of hell or Hades would not prevail against his church, do, did they think that if he was the head of the church, that he was the one who was going to be building his church, that the gates of Hades would prevail against him? If, it wasn't, if they weren't going to prevail against him and them and keep them imprisoned in Hades or hell, they surely those gates wouldn't keep him imprisoned in Hades. Yeah, we all, that's, I guess it's a tendency of human nature. We always hear the bad things. <laughs> we should keep our ears open for the good things. Also, he had said that he would give them the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That, that, you know, to give somebody keys, you have to have the keys, right? He is the one who owns, has, possesses the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What else does he possess? The, king, the keys to death and hell. But again, it's easy for us to say, oh, why didn't these guys understand? Why didn't they hear it? But if we were in their sandals, we probably wouldn't have heard all these things either. So I'm not criticizing them. But the fourth and the last must was the greatest one of all. It was the must of victory. It was that he would be resurrected the third day. And that would be the final divine sign that he promised to the nation of Israel, right? This would be the final one that would authenticate to the nation his person and his work. So, this was a fantastic day of learning for these guys. Boy, they jumped right into school, didn't they? 
They had that final exam. They passed that final exam about who do you say that I am, and then bingo, he tells them about the church for the first time. He tells them about his need to go to Jerusalem, about his upcoming suffering, his death, his resurrection. And we continue in these verses. He's also going to tell them about his return, time of his second coming. So, boy, they, they jumped in with both feet in this, in this new school. True to his character, who, who was the first one to respond? Or who was the only one to? I think the other guys were so stunned they didn't have. <laughs> but Peter, Peter, impetuous Peter, was the first to speak up. And this time it really would have been better if he had been quiet. <laughs> only a few verses earlier, I think two or three verses ago, he had been led by God the Father to confess his, his faith in Jesus as the Christ and as one in nature and in essence with the living God of eternity, the, the Father himself. And now who is he being led by? Satan. He's being led by Satan to try to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. So Peter, well, Peter had just confessed that Jesus was divine and even called him Lord here. His rebu- rebuke contradicted his confession, didn't it? Call somebody Lord, and then you say, oh, no, you know what you're saying cannot be. He is showing arrogance here, pride. How could Peter or any of us call Jesus Lord and agree that he is indeed God and yet disagree with him and place our thoughts and our ways above his? But do we do it? Absolutely we do it. We're all, at one time or another, we are all like Peter. There's a little bit of Peter in every one of us. Without a doubt, there are certain passages of the scripture that I could probably open up to this morning and read to us. And many of us, in our minds and in our hearts, we would say, oh, I don't like that. And we would tend to argue with those. Well, that isn't what it really must mean, you know, and give it some different interpretation to fit what we want it to say. Why do we do that? Why do we do these things? Well, because we don't like sometimes what the scripture says. We like to put our own thoughts and our own ideas above God's. Also, the believer who complains about what the Lord is doing in his sovereign plan for his or her life is really doing the same thing that Peter did. He's sharing in Peter's presumption that he knows or she knows better than God what is best. Right? Peter said here, Uh, Be it far from thee, Lord, after the Lord had just said an imperative, a divine imperative, a must. Peter would have tried to drive the idea of dying from the Lord's mind. He would have done it. It's always easy for us to accept the blessings. It's always easy for us to accept the positive things that are a part of God's plan for our lives. But how often do we tend to argue, you know, mentally, sometimes even maybe subliminally, that's the right way to pronounce it, and, and question him when it comes to the, to the hardships and the pains and the trials. Don't we often then tend to doubt his wisdom um, and even his divine providence, maybe his love for us? You know, Lord, if you really loved me, you wouldn't send this into my life. You wouldn't do this to me. Peter here impetuously thought, that his wisdom was superior to the wisdom of the one who he had just confessed to be divine, the son of the God, the living one. So he rebuked the Lord by saying, in effect, God forbid this is never going to happen to you. And I think in that, Peter was saying, I will never let that happen to you. You know, Peter was a big, rugged, burly fisherman. Walking 130 miles was no problem for him. He was basically saying, I'm not going to let this happen to you, Lord. He meant well. And I can guarantee you at this point in time, Peter would have probably given his life for the Lord. Didn't he love the Lord? Didn't he want to always be where the Lord was? Isn't that why, without thinking, he just jumped out of the boat and tried to walk out to him because he wanted to be with him? But even good intentions can be misleading when they are not in keeping with God's will. You know, no matter how much we want to excuse Peter here, saying, oh, well, he just really loved the Lord, and the concept of the Lord dying, just he, he just didn't want the Lord to die. He loved him, so we excuse that, but we shouldn't excuse that. Just like when the Lord told people not to go about telling when they'd been healed, and they disobeyed, and they did exactly the opposite, that's not excusable. What Peter did here 
was very wrong. He actually became a spokesman for Satan because Satan was constantly trying to keep the Lord from the cross. Peter's mind, I got to thinking, Peter's mind was like a radio station, like a a radio program that isn't tuned in right on an exact station. Have you ever had that happen? I know you have. You're driving along and you're listening to a wonderful channel. You're listening to Bible Broadcasting Network and you're getting this great Christian music coming across or some Bible teaching and all of a sudden there's this horrible rap music that comes blaring into your station. That's how Peter's mind was right here. He wasn't quite tuned in under one station. One minute he's uh, talking for God, next minute he's talking for Satan. He completely contradicted here what Jesus had just said was a divine must. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must be killed. Why do you think Peter did this? Well, primarily because he and the others just would not understand. Not that they couldn't understand, but they would not understand or accept the idea of a suffering, crucified Messiah. The Jews didn't. You know, that's still a stumbling block and offense to the Jews. The cross, a suffering Messiah. All those passages in the Old Testament that talked about a suffering Messiah, they, they, they spiritualized them away, or they said they had to do with Israel. They just could not conceive of a suffering Messiah. They wanted the lion, but not the lamb. And I thought even John, did they not hear what John the Baptist said when they first followed Jesus? And he pointed and said, behold, the lamb of God, which comes to take away the sin of the, of the world. They, they just, again, their ears were clogged, I guess. Also, we do have to commend, you know, well, I don't want to say commend, but we do have to admit that it was Peter's love for Jesus that had something, of course, to do with this rebuke. And then again, fear, too, may have also played a part in Peter's rebuke. Um, And on the night when Jesus was arrested, and I thought about that night, too. Peter was still fluctuating because one moment... He, he was very brave, and he was going to defend the Lord to the death. He took out his sword, and he cut off Malchus's ear when they came into the garden to arrest the Lord. And then the next minute, what is he doing? Well, again, he wants to be with the Lord, so he's following him. We have to commend him. At least he's following, but he denies the Lord. Why? Out of fear. Out of fear. So fear probably, you know, if Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem to be killed, that would put Peter and the other fellows in a pretty precarious position wouldn't it? They were his disciples. But for whatever reasons, Peter placed his own thoughts above the Lord's, and for that he received the Savior's very, very strongest rebuke. I got to thinking, I don't think the Lord ever talked so harshly to anyone as he did here. Not even to the religious rulers, and he called them some pretty nasty names. You know, whited sepulchers and uh, vipers and serpents and uh, hypocrites and all that, but said they were the um, their fa- of their father, the devil, but here he actually addresses Peter as Satan. Let's look at that, verse 23. The Lord says, and by the way, over in Mark's account, you see in verse 23 where it says, but he turned? In Mark uh, 8.33, the parallel account, it says, but when he had turned about and looked upon his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Do you know what that reminds me of? When Jesus heard Peter say, you know, be it far from thee, Lord. This is not going to happen. You are not going to die. Wherever Jesus was, in front of him, on the side of him, whatever, he turned and he looked at Peter. Do you know what that reminds me of? If you look over at Luke twenty-two sixty-one, when Peter denied the Lord for the third time, and then he heard the, the rooster crow... It says that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And instantly Peter was convicted in his heart. And don't you know that his mind went back to this occasion when he heard the Lord's words, Get thee behind me, Satan. And that was in his mind after he said, Oh, I just was used of Satan again. I just denied the Lord like he said I would. And he went out and wept bitterly. So, you know, sometimes the little words like he turned and looked at him. Is interesting. All right, anyway, Jesus turned. He cut him off quick. He didn't let Peter say any more. He turns and he says, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. He actually addressed Satan. The Lord addressed Satan, who was using Peter as his instrument to keep Jesus from the cross. Now, this doesn't mean that Peter was unsaved. This does not mean that Peter lost his salvation and was now possessed 
by Satan. It merely means that Peter had just verbally expressed Satan's purpose. If you remember, Satan has already, you know, all throughout the Old Testament, he tried to prevent the Messiah from coming, the one who would fatally crush his head. But ever since the Lord was born, he has been trying to prevent him from going to the cross. When Herod the Great had all the males two years and younger slaughtered, the slaughter of the innocents there in Bethlehem, what was that? It was trying to prevent Jesus from growing up and going to the cross. What about the violence of the people of the Lord's own hometown of Nazareth when they tried to push him off the cliff? Again, Satan was behind that. What about when the Lord was crossing over the Sea of Galilee to get over to the Gadarenes and he, he was asleep in the boat? That, that storm that hit, I believe, was a satanically induced storm to put Jesus and all of his men into an early watery grave. Why? So that he wouldn't get to the cross. Also, when... Uh, when the crowd the, the, uh, of 5,000 tried to, to give Jesus a crown, to force a crown upon his head without the cross, that was satanically induced. And originally Satan did this where? In the wilderness. Yeah, remember? When he promised him the whole world, if he would just worship him, it was another attempt to keep Jesus, you know, from going to the cross, except the, the crown without the cross. But of all those temptations, this one must have really cut the Lord to the quick, his heart. I mean, this was like a knife piercing the Lord's heart because where did this satanic temptation come from? None other than one of his beloved disciples, Peter. You know the Lord had, had a special love for Peter, a special love for all of the men. Peter was special. We, you can't help but love Peter, can you? You love him. But here, Satan had Peter thinking and speaking along the same line of reasoning. You know, uh, that the death of Jesus did not seem to him, to Peter, to be be necessary. This is is what is being underplayed in, in even the church today. The churches of today is the cross. Without the cross, there is no salvation. But there is, ooh, I was listening, as, I, as we were making our trip down to the coast, we had um, a CD we were listening to that I would like all of you to hear. It's on the emerging church movement. And I have always loved Zondervan Publishing Company. A lot of the books, if you go over to the Christian bookstore, are published by Zondervan. But now Zondervan is publishing all kinds of material on this new movement, this emerging church movement. So beware of what you buy. And it is pushing the, the, um, the teaching that the Bible, I've told you about this before, that, that uh, doctrine isn't important and that the Bible is too mysterious for anybody to, to really be able to understand it and interpret it. I don't know how much clearer the Lord could be <laughs> in the scripture in many, like what we're looking at today, that he must die and all the, well, anyway. But they're saying you can't understand it, it's all mysterious and they want to just engage in conversation and not teach doctrines. And, there, and one of the men who's written a book that's very popular actually says that the cross was the worst case of child abuse that has ever occurred. God, you know, abusing his son. So beware, ladies, what you read. He was, Peter here was oblivious to the fact that the Messiah must, by his death, provide a way for the redemption of mankind. Actually, what Peter was doing here was asking for his own damnation. Because if the Lord didn't go to the cross, Peter would be damned for all of eternity, as would all of us. So he was zealous for God, but he was ignorant in his zeal, wasn't he? You know, Satan's lie has never changed from the very beginning. When he first introduced sin into this world... You know, remember when Satan put into Eve's mind that God's way was not the best way? You know, think about it, Eve. It's too limiting. It's too restrictive. You mean you can't eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why, Eve? Is it because God is trying to keep something from you? He's trying to keep his own power. He doesn't want you to be like he is. You know, put your thoughts above his Eat that fruit. Don't listen to God's word. Trust your own thinking. 
Isn't that what Satan was whispering in her ear? Trust your own thinking. Actually, trust my thinking, Eve. And she did. And this is basically what Satan was whispering into Peter's ear. He's saying, hey, Peter, you know, your idea about the Messiah and what he should do and what he should not do is really a lot better. It's a lot superior than God's plan. This is a good guy. Look at him. He's wonderful. He's great. He's got power. Man, you know, why should he die? He's never done anything wrong. All he's done is go, go around helping people. And, and your people have been waiting for thousands of years for him to come. You know, he just needs to take up that, that, uh, that cro- crown, not the cross. He needs to take that crown and start reigning over your people today. This cross business is foolishness. That's what a lot of people, you know, they don't like the idea of a cross. Now, they like the idea of a cross for love, that it symbolizes love. But you know what else the cross symbolized? Sin and shame. And there was a, it was a bloody place. And people say, oh, that's morbid. Just like Peter's thinking here, oh, dying, that's a, that's a morbid thought. So the same apostle who had just a moment before been inspired by God, the Father, to give a beautiful confession of faith, now was inspired of Satan. Did you realize that no man should instruct or counsel God? <laughs> I know that seems to be an obvious, but we seem to tend to do it a lot. Peter certainly was trying to do it, trying to counsel the Lord here. It is not our task to force our ideas on God, on the Lord. What is our task? Just to obey. Sometimes even if we don't understand it, a lot of times even if we don't understand it, our task is simply to surrender and to obey his will. We need to all be alert to the potential for this, what happened to Peter, to happen in our own lives. Is it possible for me to stand up here and speak for God the Holy Spirit one minute and go out in the foyer and speak for Satan? Unfortunately, yes, it's very possible. One, one uh, body organ <laughs> that we cannot tame is what? The tongue. It, oh, is it? It's a lifelong struggle, isn't it, to tame that tongue? This could happen to any of us. Whenever we follow our own wisdom instead of the Spirit's wisdom, we will be a tool and a mouthpiece in the hands of Satan, and we will be an offense to God. Do you want to be an offense to God? Do you want to be a stumbling block to God? I don't. I know that I fail and I fall, and I am at times, but I don't want to be. Jesus said to Peter that he was an offense to him. Satan was using Peter, you see, to try to trip him up. It's interesting, I was reading Charles Spurgeon, his book on this, and remember what Peter's name, Petros, what it means? Stone. It means a stone, a small stone compared to a rock. Uh, Jesus had to pick up that small stone and throw it behind him (laughs) so that he wouldn't trip over him, so that he wouldn't stumble over him. I think it's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 123, the idea of a crucified Messiah is still a stumbling block to the Jews, isn't it? But the idea of not going to the cross was a stumbling block. You know, Peter was trying to put that stumbling block in front of, in front of the Lord. Well, then in the final part of verse 23, the Lord told Peter, why it was that he had fallen into Satan's trap, and it was because he was not savoring the things of God. you know what that means? It means Peter's taste, his taste for things, was not the same as God's taste. He wasn't savoring the things of God. He wasn't setting his mind on the things of God, but he was setting his mind on the things of man. In other words, he was looking at the situation from his immediate interest and not from God's interest. He was reasoning from his limited, finite, human, sinful mind and trusting in his own human perspective rather than trusting in the far greater, infinite, sinless, divine perspective. In his mind, in Peter's mind, the death of the Son of God, one who is equal in nature and essence with God, in his mind, Death was unfit for God. Now, that is a mystery, isn't it? That God should die. That's a mystery. And yet, it's true. God did die. And that was all part of God's plan for for us, for you and I. So Peter's tastes were different from God's tastes. Well, to skip some things, and let's go on to the salvation paradox, or we'll never get through here. 
Let's look at verses 24 to 26, where the Lord says uh, unto his disciples, and by the way, over in Mark, it says he called at this point in time. Now, it's interesting that he didn't rebuke Peter in front of the crowd, but now he calls a crowd of people over to him. And what he speaks about true discipleship is now to a big crowd. And you can see that in Mark 8.34, that he called people over to him. But it is good. Like when you punish your children, should you do it in front of a crowd? Should you do it in front of other children, other people? No, you should take them aside and rebuke them privately, which is what the Lord did with Peter. But now he's not only speaking to his, his disciples, but he speaks to a crowd of people there up in Caesarea Philippi. And he says, if any man will come after me. Now, that's an open invitation to anyone there. He says that he, the word for will, remember how we talked about unlimited atonement and free will? This is saying if any man desires, if any man will, if any man wants to, the Greek word for will is thelis, and it means want, desire, will. Tithelis, if I say tithelis, it means what do you want, what do you desire? So he's saying if any man will, He can come after me. So this was an invitation for any in the crowd who didn't know him, who hadn't accepted him. And then it's also, it has double meaning because it's also an invitation to true discipleship. Now you can be saved and not really a disciple of the Lord. So now he's going to talk about true discipleship to his men or anyone there that's willing to do what he says. He says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake, and over in Mark it says, and for the gospel's sake shall find it. Whoever loses his life for Christ's sake or the gospel's sake will find it. For what is a man profited, you all know this verse, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? We'll stop there for now. All right, I already told you that some people now join up, and he speaks these words to all of them. He's saying here that there is a price to pay for true discipleship. Not only did he have to go to the cross, but in a sense, any who will follow him also have to go to the cross by dying to themselves and their own ideas and their own ways, and their own plans. While it's true that to come to Jesus is to receive so much, you know, to receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, and to continue to receive God's rich blessings, not only in this life, but throughout eternity, yet the Bible, and primarily the Lord Jesus himself, repeatedly makes it clear that a cross precedes the crown. No crown without a cross. And that, of course, was what Satan kept trying to turn upside down. Suffering precedes glory. Obedience precedes blessing. You want to be blessed? Simple formula, simply obey. And sacrifice precedes rewards. The whole heart of true Christian discipleship is A paradox, really. And we've seen many paradoxes. Remember when we studied the Sermon on the Mount? We learned all those divine paradoxes. Who out in the world, for example, would say, blessed are the poor, especially in this country? (laughs) Who would say, rich are the poor? But it's true. It's one of those divine paradoxes, but it's true. Who would say, happy are the sad? That's a paradox. But didn't Jesus say, blessed are the mournful, those who mourn over their sins? Who would say, filled are the hungry, filled are the thirsty? It's true. Happy are the persecuted? You've got to be kidding. But it's true. It's just as true as the, as the um, law of gravity <laughs> and the, the second law of thermodynamics that everything is decaying. It tells us, he tells us here that we gain by giving away. We gain by giving away. We win by losing. That's where I get the title for this lesson, Profiting by Loss. The message he tells us in these verses is that profit is actually made by loss. And this isn't the first time, really, that the Lord spoke about the high cost of discipleship. You remember right before he sent his men out on that first mission venture without him? 
in pairs and he gave them the ordination sermon. You know what he said in that sermon? He who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He said he who is, does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And then he said he that findeth his life shall lose it and he that loses his life for my sake will find it. And he's going to say this again. He's going to repeat these things again. You know, we cannot die for sin, can we? Because none of us are sinless. There was only one who could die for sin. But we need to die to self every day. <laughs> oh, boy, is that the hardest thing in the Christian life or, or what? Pride and dying to self. Jesus had just told Peter <clears throat> that the reason Satan had been able to speak through him was because he had been thinking, not thinking, I should say, not thinking as God thinks, but as man thinks. His mind, Peter's mind, had man's immediate interest in mind and not God's long-term interest. Yes, it would have been great for Peter to keep Jesus with him the rest of his earthly life. That would have been short-term interest. But it surely wouldn't have been in Peter's long-term interest, would it? Or for any of us, would not have been the long-term interest. What he... What Jesus then tells his men and the other people gathered around him is how different God's ways are from man's way. Would any of us have ever invented this way of salvation? No, you know we wouldn't have because we've seen the ways that men make up for salvation. And it's always works-oriented. It always gives us the glory, not Christ. But we, we would have all avoided a scene like the bloody cross, I'm sure. He said, again, well, let me skip that because I've already really talked about that. Uh, so he gave an invitation to anybody there that they could come after him, but also this invitation was for, for his men, believers who were present. And to them, what it was was a repetition of a call to commitment, the call to a life of total obedience to the point of even being a living sacrifice. You know, with all the increased information that Jesus had just given his men, he had just told them that he was going to be killed, that he was going to die. Would they still be interested in following him now? You know, now that he has made it crystal clear, are they still going to be interested in following him? And if so, it must be as self-deniers and what else? Cross-bearers. Self-deniers and cross-bearers. You know, self-seeking, which is another movement in, in Christendom today. Self-seeking, you know, self-esteem and all this kind of stuff. That is the opposite of what Jesus teaches. He teaches, blessed are the poor in spirit. He teaches self-denial. The problem with self-seeking is that it has been at the essence of sin from the very beginning. What was, why did Lucifer fall? Self-seeking. But it's the total opposite of what we see in the Savior. If we're going to follow him, we need to be like him. You know, he was equal with God, and yet he abased himself. He humbled himself, took on the likeness of man, and became even obedient to, to the death of the cross. A shameful thing. The total opposite of self-seeking. He humbled himself so that he might raise others up. What an example. And it's, again, it's a, just the total opposite of what the world would tell us. You know, they tell us it's all about us and ego and pride and all of that sort of thing. Well, why would the Lord feel it necessary to reiterate this call to absolute commitment to men who'd already given up so much to follow him? They'd given up their occupations. They'd left their families. And, you know, they'd been following him now for about two years. Why would he do this? Well, it's because it is very tempting to compromise on our commitment to Christ when the cost becomes what we consider to be just a little bit too much, too high. But we cannot, and do people do that? Are churches full of people who just sit soaked and sour and don't ever really become a follower, a disciple of the Lord? Why is that? Oh, because the cost is too high. I don't want to get involved. Hmm. I might have to sacrifice. I have to, might deny myself. I might have to give up some of my time and energy and talents and money. You mean they actually pass an offering tray in that church? Forget it. The cost is too high. But we cannot and we should not expect to experience the abundant life that the Lord offers without being willing to give up our, of ourselves, our time, 
our energy, our gifts, our talents. All these things come from him anyway, right? All we are is giving them back to him. He's the one that gave them to us. We offer them as sacrifices back to him. And losing ourselves to serve him and to reach others for him should not be an act of desperation, but it should be an act of devotion. Why do we do it? Because we love him. We love him. He's done so much for us. The least we can do is live for him and live for others. What's that little formula? Joy. How do you get joy? You want joy? Put Jesus first, serve him, then others, and last, yourself. Yourself. Yeah, that why. Yourself. A person who's not willing to deny himself. And notice Jesus said, deny himself. It doesn't say deny uh, certain behaviors. Like you can't do this and you can't do that. If you're going to be a disciple, you can't. You can't spit, you can't chew, you can't smoke, you can't whatever. I forget, I don't know that little poem, but he isn't saying give up behaviors or he isn't saying you have to deny things. He's saying what? Let him deny himself. A person who is not willing to deny himself and his rights cannot rightly claim to be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word he used for deny comes from a Greek word which means to completely disown. True discipleship involves abandonment of self and utter disowning of self. Aren't we crucified with Christ? And, and yet I live, but not I. It's Christ living in me. And you know what? It's just one of those laws of God that works. Try it. It works. That you can lose your life for him in serving him. You'll find your life. You really will. You will find your life. I'm, I'm just so blessed to have the life that I have. It has given me meaning and purpose and joy and fulfillment. I am so glad even though there's been a lot of sacrifices and giving up, you know, can't do this, can't do that. And, but it's, in the long run, it's such profit. Is, is, is being a disciple of Christ worth it? How many would you say that it is? It absolutely is. Would you exchange your life for someone like Anna Nicole Smith? Oh, my goodness. The very, very tragic life. You know, it's very, very sad. What good did all her money do her? All the things. Did you ever think about the fact that you can only... (laughs) Things, you know, will all fade one day. There won't be anything in this world left because it's all going to be burned up one day and the Lord is going to build a new heaven and a new create a new heavens and a new earth. So nothing we have here is going to last. Donald Trump can't pull a U-Haul behind him when he goes to the cemetery. Everything is going to fade. Beauty fades. What good did her beauty do her? Actually, it was a terrible uh, negative in her life. She it doesn't do any good. Somebody else is going to be eating off of all those dinner plates. Did you ever realize that uh, you can only use one thing at a time? <laughs> you can only sleep in one bed eat every night. You can only live in one house at a time. You can only wear one outfit every day. You can only eat off of one dinner plate every day. You know, things don't matter for eternity. The only thing that matters is your soul. Is the, eter- the soul is eternal. Things are not. And one soul is worth the whole world. Is more valuable than the whole world. I've gotten off my subject, but alright, let's go on to cross-bearing. Cross-bearing. Now, the idea, this has been so misinterpreted. <clears throat> many people, I have even heard many people say, well, I'm just bearing my cross because they have arthritis. <clears throat> or <clears throat> the Lord has blessed them with 12 children. I'm bearing my cross. Or they live with an unsaved husband. Or they have a very nagging mother-in-law. <laughs> or what are all the other things that you have heard, you know, people say that they're bearing their cross. But remember, who did Jesus speak these words to? When these people heard him say <clears throat> that uh, they need to take up their cross, they understood exactly what he was talking about. Because r- right before he spoke these words, 
right up there in Caesarea Philippi, 100 men had been crucified. You couldn't live in that day and not have seen somebody hanging from a cross. They had crosses all along the roads. When Herod, right after Herod the Great died, there was this big uh, um, revolt by the Jewish people. And 2,000 Jews were crucified. It is said that in the life of Christ, just during the time when he walked this earth for 33 years, that 30,000 people had been crucified. Now, I have never seen anybody crucified. I'm sure you never have either, either, other than, you know, on a, a movie or something, but never in reality. But I promise you, if you'd ever seen it, you would never forget it. So when they heard the Lord say, you know, you must take up your cross... They knew exactly what he meant. And they didn't have these little ideas come into their mind about having a nagging wife or a a wife who burnt the toast in the morning or having some kind of a handicap. Their minds went straight to the instrument of torture. And, you know, back in those days, they would have the person who was going to be crucified. You all know this because of the the Lord's crucifixion. They would have them bear the crossbeam beam to the place where they would be crucified and so they would be bearing on their back their own instrument of torture and death and so they understood the lord's listeners understood that he was saying that they must have a willingness to start on a death walk i'm going to jerusalem guys and i'm going there to die are you willing to go with me are you willing to begin this death walk with me They understood, in other words, that true discipleship involves the willingness to suffer shame, persecution, rejection, misunderstanding sometimes from those who are very the very closest to you. It involves even sometimes death. And many people in this world today will experience death because of their their discipleship, their, their connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, to truly be committed to Jesus Christ involves a whole lot more than just timidly raising your hand during a church invitation. You know, when everybody else's eyes are closed and their heads are bowed, which I personally, if I was giving an invitation, you know what I would say? What better place to do it openly and in public? Everybody's looking No heads bowed, no eyes closed. Do you want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you want to give your heart and soul to him? If so, let's not start out by being ashamed of it. Get up and... I mean, everybody there will rejoice with you. Get up and come forward or stand where you are and say, Yes, I want to live for Jesus. I want to give my heart to him. But no, you know, a lot of people just, you know, no cost... If there's no, so many people just want to come to church and not get involved because if there's, there's no cost, then there won't be any loss. No cost, no loss. All right, I could get off onto that, but let's go. He said that the criteria for every disciple of his is self-denial and cross-bearing. And it also, he says, follow me. It also involves obedience. The last part of verse 24, he said, and follow me. It is then, only after a person has slain the life of self and crucified the old man and accepted the sacrifice and the pain involved in discipleship that he is prepared to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be willing to submit to take part with Christ in his humiliation if we are to share with him in his glory. And so all of this boils down to a total willingness to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you're going to call him Lord, let's really submit to him as Lord. All right, in verses 25 and 26, the Lord then severely warns his listeners that once their lives have been spent, they cannot be bought back. You know, there is no such thing as reincarnation. You don't get a whole lot of lives to finally get it right. There's only one go around. This is it. Live it right. You know, even if you're starting today, live the rest of your life correctly. He tells them how they, people, we can truly save our lives and and make the most of our one opportunity here on earth. And again, this is a paradox because he says the one who wants to save his life will actually lose it. 
And the one who loses his life for Christ's sake, for the gospel's sake, will actually gain it. They will actually have a life. Remember, isn't there a billboard on the way from my house here that Jim Elliott, when he said, uh, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I have to rush through this because we are out of time, but he reinforced this entire paradox by saying, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Don't you want to say that to people you meet every day? Why are you doing this? Why, why are you so busy with up, maintaining your body, you know, trying to fight the aging process? Yeah, now we spend some time trying to do that, but some people are just obsessed with it. That's what all they live for is to um, fight the aging process or to accumulate things or to, to, uh, to be somebody famous or, you know, to get prestige, climb the corporate ladder all these things that people are wasting their time on and they're not concentrating on their own eternal soul the only thing they're going to keep throughout all of eternity they got it everything so topsy-turvy such a person who lives for this life only is really like a walking dead man who just temporarily owns a whole lot of stuff and maybe has a lot of people saying oh aren't you wonderful You know, you guys won the Super Bowl this year, but who's going to remember, except for a few fanatics, who won it a couple years from now? I I never even... Now, I did know who was playing this year because I am from Chicago. So I did know who was playing in the Super Bowl. Somebody's phone. But anyway, it's like a walking dead man. That's pretty tuned. All right, the last part is the sure promises. I'll just read these, and we'll probably talk about them a little bit more in two weeks. So um, let me just read verses 27 and 28. You know, it's, it's wonderful that after the Lord gives bad news, he always gives good news. <laughs> Not only would he raise on the third day, but listen to what he tells him that his men here. In other words, what he's saying to them in these last two verses is, you know, he's answering their thoughts, well, are all these sacrifices going to be worth it? You know, dying to ourselves and, and bearing our cross, maybe even going to a cross for you, Lord, is this going to be worth it? And here he answers them. He says, here's the first time he tells them clearly about his second coming. I'm getting away from the microphone, so I better go this way. He says, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. You know, that that's a reference to Daniel 7.13. That when the Lord Jesus will return um, with me- thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads of holy angels. This is his second coming. And it says, and then he will what? He shall reward every man according to his works. Is it going to be worth it all one day? Yes, when Jesus comes. For us, it will be at the judgment seat of Christ when he gives us our rewards. And those rewards, that's not a negative thing for us to be looking, you know, to be serving him to receive rewards because those are what he promises us. So it's a good thing. But why do we get the rewards? Just so we have something to give back to him, to cast those crowns back at his feet. To me, you know what the greatest reward of all is in living the Christian life? It's in seeing Jesus reflected in this book as a mirror, seeing myself compared to him and making appropriate changes in my life so that I become more and more like him. To me, that is the greatest reward is to see slowly, (laughs) slowly, I I might take a step forward and three steps backward, but slowly over the years, I am becoming more and more conformed into the image of Christ. And the greatest reward of all will be looking at him face to face one day. We shall behold him. He will reward every man according to his work. So that's a promise about his second coming. Now, they didn't understand that because they didn't understand the Messiah would have two comings about 2,000 years apart. But uh, they would understand it. And then last of all, verse 28, he says, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we will talk next time what that was a prophecy of the transfiguration. You know, in closing, let me just ask you really quickly, I want to close by showing you that Peter got it. Did Peter get it? 
Peter get it? He didn't want Jesus to die, but did he get it after he saw the Lord die and resurrect from the dead and receive the Holy Spirit? Would you turn real quickly to uh, 1 Peter 2.24? And we'll close with this. I just want you to see that Peter got it. (laughs) It says in 1 Peter 2.24... Peter writing, of course, and he says, who, speaking of Christ. Are you all there? Who, Christ, his own self, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Aren't you glad that the one who at one point in time was a mouthpiece for Satan became such a great mouthpiece for the Lord Jesus? See, there's hope for all of us, isn't there? Let's pray. Father God, we would pray that you would help us to ever keep in mind always that your ways and your thoughts are so much higher and so much wiser than ours. May we never question or doubt your sovereign plan for each of our lives. And help us, Father, to also ever keep in mind the fact of your imminent return and the judgment seat of Christ so that we are always looking at everything here in light of eternity. Teach us, Father, how to savor those things that you savor, to set our minds on things above, not on things on this earth, to... to, um, to, to to, to live our lives, to redeem our time wisely, not by wasting pursuits that only serve ourselves and don't glorify you or edify others. Teach us, Father, to be women who are willing to lose ourselves, our lives, in you, to decrease so that Jesus Christ might increase. And we pray these things so that Jesus Christ is lifted up and will draw all men to himself through our lives. For we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.